what if they don't like you? I got news for you. They don't. How do I know this? Well, let me ask you, do you like everyone? Even if they want to be your friend, even if they tell you that they're secretly in love with you? Probably not. And that's okay. Or are you the type of person who likes everyone back? It's easy to think that you like everyone back because you're just a nice person. It might actually be that you're not really attracted to them for anything specific about them, like their sense of humor, their intelligence, their loyalty, but simply that they make you feel better about not liking yourself. Here's the truth, babe. It's okay if you don't like everyone. And it's also okay if everyone doesn't like you back. So stop worrying about why that girl in chem class doesn't like you back. You don't have to live with her for the rest of your life. But you know what? You do have to live with you forever. So focus on being happy with you so that you can like everyone for who they are instead of who you aren't. Now have some banana toast. That was a TikTok I posted a few months ago, and this is the Korean Vegan Podcast, where we talk about how to live a more purposeful and empowered life. This week, we're going to talk about when someone doesn't like you back, how to satisfy those cravings, and the mirage of perfectionism. Stop caring about what anyone thinks of you. I heard this advice recently on TikTok, and this is the kind of BS advice that drives me nuts. It sounds cool, it sounds so irreverent, but it's really just unrealistic and impractical. It encourages people to be dishonest with themselves, dismissing real emotions in favor of a facade. The truth is, If we all went through life being completely indifferent to other people's opinions and feelings, we'd all be emotionally isolated and stunted. Human beings have evolved to be social creatures after all, and meaningful connections with other humans requires some level of vulnerability and openness to growth. So it isn't about not caring at all whether someone likes or doesn't like you. It's about trying to sift through opinions to identify those that have the potential to be constructive and those that are simply destructive. When they don't like you back. A few months ago, I did that short TikTok that we just heard, and I'll include a link to the TikTok in the show notes below on what if they don't like you? Now, in my video, I assume that the person you're worrying about, you know, think of that person in your head right now, doesn't like you. Obviously, I don't know whether that girl in chem class or your colleague at work truly doesn't like you back, but I can guarantee you that at some point in your life, you will meet someone for whom you hold sincere affection or esteem, and that person will not reciprocate. Sometimes it will be because they don't even notice you, but other times it will be because they do notice you, but just not in the way that you want. So what then are you supposed to do when someone you truly respect, admire, and perhaps even love has decided they don't feel the same about you? Take inventory of the totality of the circumstances. There's this great phrase in legal jargon, totality of the circumstances. The idea is, as the phrase suggests, to consider all the available evidence before deriving any conclusion. 
This is actually tougher than it sounds. As creatures of bias, we all have blind spots. Some facts are more visible than others, and certain pieces of evidence tend to flash and blink like strobe lights, while others blend into the background as our subconscious defaults to our own unique factory settings. In other words, we might detect snubs where none exist. We might feel coldness where none was intended. This is particularly true as more and more social interactions occur over text messages, emails, and DMs, where the rules of etiquette and social norms continue to evolve with every new emoji. In short, it's very possible that this person that you're thinking of in your head right this second, who you think doesn't like you, actually likes you a lot, but is very busy at the moment and therefore has not had a chance to reconnect with you, maybe having an emotionally distressing day, week, or even month, and doesn't have the bandwidth to be social right now, is really stressed out over something that has nothing to do with you and taking it out on you a little bit because you're a close friend. And sometimes we do things like that to our close friends. I'm not saying it's excusable, but you know I know it happens. Maybe they lost their phone or otherwise doesn't have access to the internet. This is unlikely, but it's definitely happened to me. Of course, the best way to get to the bottom of this is to simply ask the person, hey, did I do something to piss you off? Or, hey, let's be friends. But I realize that these types of conversations aren't always feasible in the grown-up world to which we matriculate. In these situations, it sometimes helps to talk with someone you trust, Preferably someone who doesn't know or otherwise have any connection to the person in question so that their objectivity remains intact. They may be able to recenter your evaluation of the circumstances, unsaddled with the biases that could possibly be skewing your vision. No, they, they really don't like me back. <laughs> As I said, you will inevitably meet someone who truly doesn't like you. And there are several ways to respond to this. When you don't really know each other, if the person is someone with whom you don't have a long or deep relationship, it's unlikely you know enough about that person to truly value their opinion of you to make it worth the cost. In this scenario, it probably does make most sense to do as the BS advice suggests, stop caring. Now, obviously, that's easier said than done. Think of it this way. If you don't know enough about them to confirm whether or not their opinion of you matters, then they probably don't know enough about you to conclude that your esteem isn't worth having. In other words, the overwhelming majority of people you meet in your life, even if you really like them, don't have the inside scoop on you. Therefore, their conclusion about who you are is inevitably premised on incomplete or in some cases inaccurate information. Would you be stressing out over someone who believes that the earth is shaped like a cardboard box because all they could see was the horizon? Of course not. When you are friends, or more than friends. As I mentioned earlier, the best solution in this situation is to talk directly with the person if they are willing to do so. But here are a couple things to keep in mind before having that conversation. Be ready to hear and respect the fact that they don't want to talk about it with you. Be open to hearing things that might make you uncomfortable so that you aren't instantly defensive and closed off when you do. Be prepared to leave the conversation even if you haven't changed anyone's mind. 
Now here, I will pass along one thought that I find extremely helpful. If your friend or someone you care about refuses to talk with you about something that has obviously upset them, then honestly, they're the ones who are acting without emotional maturity, not you. If you value their friendship notwithstanding, then give it some time. Hopefully they will come around. If not, perhaps it's a good time to evaluate whether this person is truly an asset in your life. But why do I care so much whether they like me? In my own experience, whenever I start to obsess over whether someone likes me or not, it's because I don't like myself. I noticed this when I was really young, back when I was in kindergarten, in fact. One of the girls in class was sharing her gummy snacks with her friends, and when I asked her for one, she said no. I started to cry, and when teacher asked me why I was crying, what I managed to get out through my sobs was very telling. She doesn't like me. It wasn't Leah shared with everyone else, but not me. It was she doesn't like me. Over the years, I've discovered that I not only try my best to be as likable as possible, but that I very rarely dislike anyone myself. I've also learned that if anyone likes me first, for whatever reason, I instantly like them back platonically or otherwise. I'm so grateful that they like me, that they see something worthy and desirable that I reciprocate without question. In actuality, I depend on their valuation of me, because my own valuation of me is inadequate. There's a real danger that when someone's opinion of us is bad or no longer good, we will internalize it because we don't have the necessary foundation to take the implicit criticism at face value. If we are truly surviving based solely on the good opinion that someone else has of us, then what are we left with if they change or disappear? We'll start to wonder, well, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm not a good person, or maybe I was never a good person. All of a sudden, the imposter and imposter syndrome may seem inaccurate. Maybe this person who doesn't like you has unmasked you to reveal the truly ugly villain that has fooled everyone else, including yourself. Instead of focusing on why XYZ person doesn't like you, it's time to shift your attention to why you don't like you. You're the only person in the whole wide world with whom you are required to spend the rest of your life. Don't you merit that kind of due diligence? Ask yourself, are there certain things about yourself that maybe you could work on? For me, I know one of the things I don't like about myself is that I have a tendency to get annoyed over small things instead of letting it roll off my shoulders. Another thing I wish I did better taking ownership of my mistakes instead of covering them up with interminable excuses or even half-truths. But I also know that some of my feelings of unworthiness stem from lies masquerading as truths, that the size of my body deserves a spot in formulating my worth, that my desirability to men in general is indicative of my value, that my intelligence is a function of how many books I've read or my ability to craft a witty Twitter reply, that success correlates directly to the balance in my bank account and failure is never an option. You know you better than anyone in the world. You are the final authority on whether you're worthy of being liked. This is where the hard work becomes so critical. 
lay brick by brick the foundation to your self-worth so the next time someone doesn't like you, you'll have the emotional fortitude to stand your ground and take the heat or walk away. So for those of you who are new to this podcast, every single week, I take questions for advice or thoughts from members of the TKB community. And this week, Peter has asked, hi, Joanne, I am currently in the process of going vegan. I'm doing it for health, and I must say I notice a difference. I am 90% of the way there, but I still struggle with the old meat craving. How do I get over the final hump and eliminate those cravings? Dear Peter, First of all, congratulations on such an extraordinary commitment to your health. 90% is incredible. And it's so important that you take a minute to acknowledge this and reward yourself to reinforce good habits. Go book a spa treatment, pick up that shirt you've been eyeing, or grab yourself that really awesome vegan cookbook everyone's been talking about. I'll include a link to that one in the show notes below. In answer to your question, I have some practical advice. First, get really well-versed with sauces. One of my favorite meat dishes growing up was kalbi, which is Korean barbecue. Thus, one of the first things I learned how to make was my mom's Korean barbecue sauce. The recipe is in the aforementioned cookbook. I discovered that slathering that sauce all over a plate of grilled mushrooms and onions was really all I needed to make those cravings disappear. Second piece of advice. Meat cravings are sometimes a sign that your diet requires more protein. Maybe it's time to queue up the grill for some black bean burgers. One of my favorite bloggers, Nisha Vora of Rainbow Plant Life, link in the show notes below, puts together all these recipe roundups that I find so useful. She has one for tofu, beans, and lentils. Finally, If you are truly having meat cravings, then I suggest checking out some of the amazing meat alternatives out there. Now, while many of them are still highly processed, the occasional indulgence, they're not going to throw you off track if they are still plant-based. The problem with indulging in non-plant-based foods is that your brain will sort of cross a Rubicon, making it that much harder to cross back, i.e. avoiding meat in the future. Lastly, Part of starting new habits, Peter, and making commitments to yourself or to other people is learning to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Anyone who tells you that going plant-based is the silver bullet to all the things that ail you in life, physically or otherwise, is lying to you. The truth is, you may have cravings for not plant-based or otherwise unhealthy foods for the rest of your life. That's normal. When I first went plant-based, all I could think about was fried chicken sandwiches. But every time I had a, quote, craving, I'd imagine what those chickens went through their whole lives for the seven minutes of satisfaction I received from one sandwich. In the end, I determined it just wasn't worth the tax on my psyche, and I thus chose to ignore the craving and walk right past it. My point is, Peter... When you make a commitment to yourself, one that is thoughtful and reasonable, you are worth the sacrifices necessary to support that commitment. Wishing you all the best.
If you have a question, are struggling with a thorny issue, or just want to get my thoughts on something, submit a question in the show notes below. Announcements. All right, I know I've been banging this drum, but make sure to get your tickets to my Boston book signing if you're going to be in Boston in or around May 17th, 2022. I will be doing a book event with WBUR events. You can secure your spot now as seating is limited. I'll include a link in the show notes below. LA Times Festival of Books. I'll be doing a live cooking demonstration on April 23rd at USC's campus. If you are a student at USC, make sure to grab a ticket. If not, tickets will go on sale to the general public on April 17th. Okay, this one I'm so excited about. I will be doing an event with the Chicago Humanities Festival. I am so honored to be moderating a chat with Simu Liu on June 2nd to discuss his new memoir, his debut book, We Were Dreamers. It's going to be at the Music Box Theater again on June 2nd. If you are a CHF member, you can reserve your tickets now. I'll include a link in the show notes below. parting thoughts. One of the things I used to say all the time as a practicing lawyer was, you can't win them all. It always seemed that on the heels of a big victory, like winning on appeal, getting summary judgment, or making partner, bad news would follow, like sometimes within minutes. A colleague would leave me a nasty voicemail complaining about something. A judge would issue a scathing opinion against my client, or I'd get slapped with a motion to compel with a two-week deadline for a response brief. You see, no matter how hard you try or how good you are, you simply can't win them all. Now, letting yourself off the hook every once in a while is not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of strength. Why? Because perfectionism is really just a manifestation of fear that a single mistake will reveal to the world that you're not as good as you've led everyone to believe. But if you're comfortable with who you are, how good you are, how worthy you are, then the occasional slip up won't deter you from meeting your goals. As the workout instructor in my current program often says, it's not about perfect, it's about progress. What's your imperfect progress this week? <laughs>